Our Old Testament reading comes from the prophet Isaiah. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from far away, and your daughters shall be carried on their nurses' arms. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea shall be brought to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God, would you be with us this morning and reveal yourself to us. Enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ. Enliven our bodies by your Holy Spirit 
and inflame our hearts with love for you and for our neighbor, that we may become more and more like Jesus. We ask your blessing on our time now through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, this Sunday we observe the Feast of Epiphany and celebrate the baptism of our Lord. And it's customary in Christian tradition uh, to celebrate Jesus' baptism and Epiphany together because both events share a central common theme, God's self-revelation to the world. The baptism of, or Epiphany rather, commemorates the revelation of God to the nations as the wise men from the east come to Bethlehem to worship and adore the newborn king of Israel, bringing gifts as they come to Israel's light, which has dawned in the darkness of the world. And the baptism of the Lord marks the first public revelation of all three persons of the Trinity. God the Father declaring his pleasure over the Son as the Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove and anoints him as the Christ, this long-awaited, long-ago promised anointed one who would establish God's never-ending reign of peace on the earth and who is revealed in these waters of baptism as the Messiah who stands in solidarity with sinners to offer the hope and freedom of repentance unto life. And this celebration of God's revelation of himself, not just to the people of Israel, but to all the nations of the earth, completes and concludes the Christmas season. The light of God shines forth in Jesus to all the nations of the world. God has made himself known to us in him. C.S. Lewis once said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And the mysterious, beautiful, life-transforming, world-upending invitation of Epiphany is that God now invites all the world to know him through his son, Jesus. And in knowing him, to see everything differently as we look upon God, ourselves, and the world through eyes of faith, illumined by the light of Christ. Of course, when Lewis likens that light of Christ to the sunrise as something he believes not only because he can see it, but because by it he sees everything else, he doesn't mean that all of a sudden he now can see everything, right? As if faith somehow unlocked exhaustive knowledge about the world. What he means is that everything he can see, he now sees differently. And that as he looks upon the story of his own life, the story of human history, and what he knows of the world by way of science and philosophy and his own experience, the story that makes sense of it all most compellingly to him is the story of Christ. Lewis is saying that it is the light of Christ that illumines everything from science to ethics to politics to interpersonal relationships in a way that resonates with his whole being, making his soul sing and his intellect churn and his heart expand to make room for God and others. And this light, the light of God's glory revealed in Christ is what we celebrate today as we observe the feast of Epiphany and recall this story of the Magi, these wise men from the East, coming to Israel to pay homage to the newborn King Jesus, which is this moment when God fulfills his ancient promise to make himself known to the nations, this promise, this vision that we just heard and read from the book of Isaiah. 
Epiphany is this beautiful moment when God makes himself known to the world as a God who is for everyone, not just for one religious, ethnic, or political group, but for all the peoples of the earth. That's remarkable. The living God is not a nationalistic or tribalistic deity. He is the creator, sustainer, and redeemer, and Lord of all the peoples of the earth. And so let's just say it here this week, lest we fail to be clear in this dark chapter of American political theater. The rank violent displays of nationalism that we've seen this week and that we've seen with increasing frequency in this country in recent years are absolutely antithetical to the gospel of Jesus and to the vision of God's kingdom that we find in the Bible, period. Let there be no confusion about that. The nationalistic goal of the angry mob stands in opposition to the goal of God's worldwide mission to bless all the nations of the earth. And the means by which the angry mob pursues its goal are in no way compatible with the way of Christ, the way of humility, mercy, and love. And so for the crowd to hoist Christian symbols alongside symbols of hatred and white supremacy and violence, Confederate flags and nooses, gallows, Holocaust glorifying paraphernalia, what have you, is not just ludicrous and racist and evil, to be sure it is those things, but it is also to take the Lord's name in vain and to co-opt Christianity for an anti-Christian mission. And that's what we've seen this week. And we should be prepared to see more. An epiphany, this feast that we've come to celebrate, this story of God revealing himself to all nations in this humble child, the Christ child, prepares us as the church to bear witness to a greater king, a greater kingdom, and to do so resiliently and with love in the world. Epiphany is a momentous occasion. But at the same time, Epiphany can be kind of a challenging day for us because the event we celebrate, right, this, these wise men coming from the East to honor baby Jesus, it kind of doesn't seem to live up to the expectation God's people might have had for that great day of fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 60 that we just read. When the light of God would shine forth and illumine all things, dispelling the darkness. This vision that we get of throngs of all the peoples of the earth coming together to worship God as this one diverse yet unified family restored in relationship to God and to one another and all together living in peace on the earth. When we read the story, right? When we read the story of the wise men against the backdrop of that Old Testament hope, it's a little bit hard not to be underwhelmed right? By what actually happens. It's hard to read this and not be struck with the disappointment and the sense of like, that's it? I mean, how is it that this glorious worldwide vision is somehow fulfilled in this little moment of a small band of astrologers from Persia showing up to give presents to baby Jesus? And at that, the presents that are more appropriate for a funeral than a baby shower Gold works, it's good for the occasion, but frankincense and myrrh were typically spices used for anointing the dead. It's actually quite a weird story. 
And if we get past the numbing effect of our overfamiliarity with the story, I think we can begin to see that its weirdness is actually where the power of the story resides. As is often the case in the scripture, the strangeness is where the good stuff is. And the unexpected way that this story plays out should challenge our expectations for our own lives with God and train us to pay attention to the real God who has actually come to us rather than waiting endlessly for whatever imaginary God we may create in the image of our own expectations. And this real God we acknowledge today at Epiphany is the light of the world who dawns in the real darkness of our lives. This God of power and mercy and love who changes lives and restores the broken things out there in the world and in here, in ourselves, among us and around us, in our relationships with one another. And as we consider the story of the Magi, let's just think about it with respect to two things. One, our expectations, and two, the light by which we see. Our expectations shape all of our experiences of life, right? We know that. And of course, that was no less true for the ancients than it is for us today. And the ancient Israelites, they had their expectations of God and what it ought to look like for God to be active in their lives and in the world. And those expectations were largely centered around two things, God's place and God's king. God's place was the land of Israel, generally and specifically the temple, God's house that stood at the center of the land. And God's king was the anointed Messiah who was going to reign under God and over the kingdom. It's a position that had been vacant for quite some time by the time Jesus arrives on the scene. And, uh, and it's even occupied by pretender kings like Herod, who's more a puppet of the Roman Empire than a real ruler of the people of Israel. But the idea was that God's people living in God's place and led by God's king would be the fountain of God's blessing for the whole world that the wisdom and flourishing life that God would bestow upon this one nation, Israel, would not just be for their own benefit, but would be a gift for all the nations who would come from afar to experience life in the presence of God. And so the expectation was there that God would someday provide his promised king to restore his promised kingdom and through that kingdom bring God's peace to bear upon the earth. And of course, when God finally did provide his promised king in Jesus, he did make good on that ancient promise. But he did it in a way that defied all expectations, which is why most people missed it at the time. And that's the same reason I think most of us tend to miss God most of the time when God shows up in our lives. Our expectations shape our experience. And when we have strong expectations and our experience doesn't fit them, we, bec we become disappointed or angry, right? We, especially when life is hard, we could become frustrated when what happens doesn't live up to our expectations. But on the other hand, when we have no expectations of God, we often have no discernible experience of him either because we aren't paying attention. It's similar to a phenomenon known in the world of psychology as 
inattentional blindness or perceptual blindness. I don't know if you've probably seen, there's a famous study that went about, uh, happened about 20 years ago called the invisible gorilla test. Have you seen this? Where the participants were asked to watch a video of people passing a basketball around and the participants are asked to count the number of passes that happen uh, among one group of people in the video. And so they're counting the passes and then in the, in the middle of the video, someone in a gorilla suit comes out into the middle of the frame and, and pounds its chest and then goes back. And after the end of the video, they would interview the participants. And it was shocking how few of them saw the gorilla. It's obvious if you're just watching it, but they were so focused on counting the passes that they missed the thing that was so obviously present. Why? Because they didn't expect to find him there and their attention was focused elsewhere. And so they, they didn't see him. Even though he was right there, it's as simple as that. They weren't paying attention. And similarly, when we don't expect to find God showing up in our lives and in our world, we miss him, right? Not because God is absent, but because we are. We aren't paying attention. And Martin Laird captures this well in the reflection quote that was on the screen at the beginning of the service, where he says, God is too simple to be absent. It is we who with complicated and cluttered minds remain unaware that this foundational light is flowering perpetually in the fertile and unfathomable right now. Our expectations of what it would look like for God to show up or our complete lack of expectation that he will show up, shape our experience of God, often to the point that we just pass by quickly without noticing. But Epiphany challenges us. Epiphany challenges us to stop and to notice, like the wise men do, the presence of God in unexpected places, in the ordinary stuff of life. So as you think about your own expectations of God, just take a moment and reflect, what are they? What do you think it would look like for God to show up? Where do those expectations come from? Are you beginning with your own imagination and seeking a God who fits it? Or are you beginning with God's actual appearing in our world in Christ? And then letting the story of Christ shape your imagination and your expectation of what God must be like. That's the challenge and the invitation of Epiphany, I think, to recognize and to embrace this God who defies our expectations, the real one who shows up in our real lives and real world. So where do we see God showing up in this story? Well, obviously, God shows up in the person of Jesus. That's the whole point of the gospel story. And when he does show up, he shows up in a shockingly humble way. He's not born in a palace. He's not in the capital city. He's this humble child of ordinary parents living in an unimpressive place. From the manger all the way to the cross, the story of Christ is one of remarkable humility that reveals to us a God of love who's willing to meet us where we are in the grit and the grime of our real lives and to put himself beneath us so that the burden of our lives and of all that is wrong with the world ultimately falls on his shoulders and not ours. He shows up in the ordinary spaces of life 
to ignite a movement of love, to give himself in self-sacrificial love for others, even to the point of death, to rise from the dead in power and glory, and to come again to finish what he started. And that's astonishing. I don't think any of us, if you were just going to ask us to come up with what we thought God must be like, dip into our own imaginations and just come up with something, I don't think any of us would have come up with Jesus. Yet there he is, surprising and fascinating. But also surprising and fascinating is how God leads these wise men from the east into an encounter with Jesus. How do we see him do that? He uses two things, a star and the scriptures. These wise men are astrologers. They read the stars in search of wisdom, which is not a highly acclaimed pathway to wisdom, according to the Bible, but God meets these wise men where they are. God speaks to them in their own language, as it were, and uses the stars to lead them to Israel. Now, the stars aren't sufficient in themselves, right? Because the wise men, they're following the star, and that leads them uh, to Jerusalem, where they hear God's teaching in the scriptures about where the Messiah would be born. And with the guidance of both the star and the scripture, the Magi then find the Christ child in Bethlehem and pay him homage. It's just fascinating, and even more fascinating when you think about what God uses in our own lives to draw us into spaces where we discover him. If you're a person of faith who has been living in communion with God for some time, you probably have your own stories of encountering God and experiencing God's presence. Just think about all the ways God has worked in your life to awaken you and to draw you into a space where you would begin to experience life with God or that you would begin to change. Of course, for those of you who don't see yourselves uh, as people of faith and don't have personal stories yet of encountering God in these ways, just think, what was it that led you here today? What is it that's led you to tune in and worship with us this morning? What are the desires or the relationships or the questions or this sense of something more that you want to explore? What are the things that have prompted you to come and to participate with this community, even virtually, as we worship God and listen to the scriptures? What light, if you will, or lights perhaps, are you following? And then curiously, why, why might they have brought you here? God is so kind to meet us on our own turf. He doesn't necessarily answer all our questions or satisfy all of our desires, but he comes to find us where we are and to invite us to join him where he actually is rather than simply leaving us to explore and perhaps find him where we expect him to be. And then, of course, the question for us when we find ourselves in the presence of God, in the place where he is, encountering him in worship, meeting him in the community of faith, as scattered as we may be these days, or in the teaching of the scriptures, or in the breaking of the bread at the table, or in the acts of love and mercy to which he calls us, when we find ourselves in the presence of God as he comes to us in Christ, the question then for us 
is how will we respond to him? What will we do with Jesus? And in this story, we see these two opposite responses. We see Herod's resistance to Jesus, and we see the wise men's embrace of Jesus. Herod is frightened, Matthew tells us. And in his fear, he resists Jesus as king in order to protect what he wants for himself. And of course, we know from the rest of the story that Herod's self-protective move turns tragic and even murderous very quickly. But on the other hand, the wise men respond in this very different way. They are open to God's leading. And even though they don't fully understand it, they come and they find Jesus. And when they do, they embrace him. They worship him. They pay homage to him in costly devotion. Two responses. On one hand, self-centered, self-protective fear. On the other hand, open, other-centered, self-giving love. They're two opposite orientations to the world, to God, and to others. And of course, every one of us is probably some complicated mix of those things, right? The challenge of epiphany for us is just this. How will we respond to God, this one who reveals himself to us in Jesus? Will we receive him or reject him? Will we be awakening to him or will we be dozing off? To his presence? Will we even pay attention enough to notice that he's there? This God who shows up in our real lives, in our relationships, in our loneliness, in our doubts, in our questions, in our longings, even in our dark night of the soul. This God who defies our expectations and explanations and often even our demands. This God who says, I'm for all the nations and all the peoples of the earth, not just for one tribe, not just for one in-group. This God who takes on human flesh and joins us in the waters of baptism to stand in solidarity with sinners and extend mercy and to offer love and new life and hope to people like you and me and the angry mob. This God is the light of the world. He's the hope of your life and the lover of your soul. May God give us grace this epiphany to embrace him who has embraced us in love, the true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.